On this episode of China Unscripted, the Chinese Communist Party is going after people in other countries. And inside China, they're using COVID to crack down more than ever before. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Matt Ganesta. And I'm Shelley Zhang. And joining us today once again is Levi Browdy. He's here to talk about how the Chinese Communist Party is directly harassing and committing violence against people in other countries. Browdy is the executive director of the Falun Dafa Information Center. It's an organization dedicated to ending the human rights abuses against Falun Gong in China. Thanks for joining us, Levi. Yeah, Thanks welcome. for having me back. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. Yeah, yeah, I think it's good to see you too. I think you might be our first in-studio guest in, in, this in the new, new studio. studio. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. All right. Well, anyway, yeah, it's it's great to have you. It's been about a year. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. Thank and you. it's been a good year for persecution, hasn't it? Oh dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> you, you already know the direction this is going. <laughs> um, that is look, always the. There's tension, always a lot right? to talk about. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's for sure. I mean, look, if you can't make jokes about genocide, what can you make jokes about? <laughs> many, many other things. <laughs> uh, well, so you. Uh, you guys just published at the the Fallen Dafa Information Center. You published a report called uh, "Pandemic Persecution and Pushback." That's right. Uh, and one of the things you talk about is transnational repression. Mm -hmm. So, uh, tell us a bit about what that is. So, that term is really just about tyrannical regimes going after people outside of their country. You know, um, you tend to think of China and these other regimes as persecuting the people inside the country, but actually they're quite active internationally around the, on the world stage. Um, Freedom House actually published uh, what I'd call a fairly groundbreaking art, uh, report on this topic uh, worldwide. And no shock, they found that China is the largest aggressor of all the countries in the in the world. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, they, do, they, do they get like a Guinness World Records plaque? I, I'm not sure if Freedom House sent them anything, maybe a mug, <laughs> um, but they were definitely at the top slot um, to, to, to no one's surprise. And one, we found that report very interesting. And so we um, one of the things we did in this report, and we covered several things, but when we looked at transnational repression, we really broke that down in terms of why they're going after Falun Gong, what's the scale of, of what they're doing to Falun Gong, and kind of the different tactics they use in different countries. So we sort of really bring that out in the report. That's interesting because, you know, you don't hear much about the China going after Falun Gong overseas. Like you hear about, you know, Russia poisoning people, obviously, because it's Russia. I remember Iran. The Iran, I was going to say, um, they, they tried to assassinate that dissident who lived in uh, New York. Well, they tried to kidnap her and bring her back to Iran. Oh, is that what they were doing? Yeah, okay. um, but then after Salman Rushdie was attacked and stabbed, the FBI basically moved her to a safe house because they said that Iran was trying to assassinate her too. Right, and so like it doesn't come as a surprise that like Iran is doing that and that Russia is- That was pretty you know. well publicized. Yeah, but, but but I haven't heard anything really in the, in the media, in the mainstream media about the Chinese Communist Party going after, whether they going after just Falun Gong overseas or, or all sorts of groups. Well, they're probably fairly prolific at going after anybody um, that they don't agree with. I mean, the Tibetans, the Taiwanese, have, this has been happening to them for decades. Um, they go after the Uyghurs to some extent. I mean, Falun Gong, it's been, they've been doing this actually since day one. I mean, literally days after the persecution was announced in China, we had people in New York whose apartments were ransacked. And pretty soon after that, some pretty creepy things. We had people who they would be having private conversations in their living room or off in the middle of a public park somewhere with no one else around. 
planning some sort of activity to expose the human rights abuses in China. And at 3 a.m. that night, they'd get a recording of that privacy conversation on their phone. Oh, Death threats would come in, things like that. So, so this was like late 90s. This was at the, uh, the fall of 1999. So the persecution started in July. And actually, not even the fall. I mean, right then. I mean, at the end of July into August, we had people in New York who were having to... We had one person who had to flee New York. Uh, who was a sort of a, a very public kind of volunteer Falun Gong in the city. Um, because of the, her apartment being broken into and the death threats and stuff, like she had to leave for a few months just to stay safe. So it started out kind of like that. It was a very sort of thug kind of behavior. Yeah. I actually had no idea. I mean, we're talking then about over 20 years yeah. of this going on. Yeah, yeah. Interesting that... Yeah, I feel like yeah, I never, I never heard about that. I mean, like you'd think, but I mean, it's a long time ago. But also, if it's still happening, and you still don't hear about it, yeah, I mean, it's it's evolved a lot. I mean, you know, a few years after the the what I just talked about in New York, you still had stuff like that. We had a guy who was in his house in Atlanta, and he happens to be one of the chief engineers at that time was just building the software that helps people in China break out of the the firewall and actually reach the free internet. So he was helping do that kind of stuff, other human rights work. Some two Asian guys knock at his door one day in Atlanta, uh, posing as water delivery people. They break into, the minute he opens his door, they break into his house, they beat him up, they wrap him in a, in a carpet. Fairly nice house. They steal nothing but his computers and hard drive and he's left unconscious and bleeding. Um, and so those incidents have happened. We've had people beaten up in front of the consulate in Chicago and San Francisco and New York. And, and so that stuff has been happening for quite a number of years. What has evolved is it's gotten a lot more sophisticated using their diplomatic missions, economic coercion, things like that. And since that time, we've had you know, internal CCP documents coming out that very explicitly call for this. We have to take the fight to Falun Gong, divide them and conquer them in the United States and other places. So it is, a at this point, a very sophisticated mechanism that the CCP uses to silence Falun Gong. I remember about four years ago, we were in... Um... Australia with Chris, and we interviewed Chen Yongling, who was like a defector from the Chinese consulate in Australia. And he said that every Chinese consulate had someone in charge of like just going after Falun Gong specifically. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, teams, like a unit in each embassy. And that was sort of the, the shocker because he came and testified before Congress here, uh, you know, a year or two after he had defected in Australia. And he kind of laid that out in front of Congress and people were sort of like shocked. Like, wait a minute, every single diplomatic mission has a team that goes after Falun Gong. That's all they do. And he tried to sort of get them across because that was kind of his prime, I think it was his primary and perhaps his only function in the, in the embassy or the consulate where he was stationed in Australia. So, yeah, I mean, that's, and it made sense to, to a lot of us who for at that time for several years, we've been facing, you know, weird stuff. I mean, um, pro-Beijing community groups in the local Chinatowns or even the student groups on Columbia campus, Columbia University or other universities around just violently sort of viscerally organized against Falun Gong and very much organized. It was, very, it was clear these weren't just a couple of people that were, you know, had a little too much propaganda in the head. This was clearly, you know, groups that were coming and attacking us. So when, when we heard Chen's testimony, we were like, yeah, this, this makes sense. Clearly this is being pushed by the embassy. So this is all done. Like, this isn't just the embassies or consulates deciding, like, you know, let's, let's you know, go after Falun Gong. Like, that sounds fun. Like, it's, it's a centrally directed thing. What do you guys want to do today? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's um, um, one of the most, con well, there's a lot of 
convincing evidence of that. There, there are other defectors that have come out that have said, yeah, they're, they're doing this kind of thing. But one of the things we got a hold of um, many years ago was an internal CCP document that's very explicit. I mean, it's very clear about, you know, the, you guys have heard of the 610 office, right? This sort of Gestapo for Falun Gong. It's, it's the agent, extra legal agency, you know, for your viewers in China that's responsible for persecuting Falun Gong. Well, it's not just in China. They're actually responsible for persecuting Falun Gong around the world. And, and their main hub in China to coordinate the worldwide activities in, is in Tianjin. And so these internal CCP documents coming out of there that call for, I, I was, I, even I was surprised. I read a lot of CCP propaganda and sort of visceral, you know, vile kind of things against Falun Gong, but how explicit they were in the language about going after Falun Gong, using economic means, using diplomatic means, divide friends, you know, use cultural institutions. And I mean, it was very explicit and very sort of long about how you attack Falun Gong overseas. And it was, it was this sort of CCP mandate. Um, and that's sort of the guiding document for what can you tell. That, so that, it's like an instruction you know, manual. It's an instruction manual. Yeah. How old? How old was this document? Like, is well, it from the beginning of the Falun Gong persecution? Yeah, is that's a recently? good question. Actually, there's been a few of these documents, and the one specifically I'm referencing is relatively new. Not the document is new; it's relatively new coming into our hands. We got it about three years ago. Okay. Um, but there had been other documents before that, and another, another um, you know, there was a CCP official that defected and sort of brought the same message. It's like, yeah, guys, we're not just doing this in China. You know that, right? We're this is this is a global campaign. And it makes sense because at this point, you know, Falun Gong is that community or out of that community has, has, has been some of the strongest and most potent sort of whistleblowing of what the CCP is doing and what, what they're really up to. And so, yeah. Yeah, that is actually one of the reasons I was asking about how recent that document is because I think because like the, the Communist Party started going after Falun Gong in the late 90s, it feels like a long time ago, it feels like you know, kind of how free Tibet is not exactly top of mind top anymore priority, yeah. for people. And so it's interesting to hear that even three years ago, they're still like, we have to go after them. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think what's interesting is, at least from what we can tell, there's different reasons over time. It's kind of I had a three-phase approach. Like in, in the very first few years, you know, this persecution was mandated from the top. You know, the top guy in the CCP said, go after Falun Gong predominantly for political, his own political power purposes. And so that's why it was number one. And that's why, you know, he's going to the APEC meeting in 1999 and saying, hey, Bill Clinton, first thing I want to talk to you about, Falun Gong. You know, and this was happening in the first few years. Wait, be before let us join the World Trade Organization? Uh, uh, sort of like in parallel. Yeah. In parallel. I mean, they, they needed the money from the WTO trade to then go after Falun Gong. Obviously, it's expensive to persecute people. <laughs> and well, I think it's a good point. It's like the mentality, right? If if something is so important to trade is on the table, and yet the first time you see Bill Clinton and APEC, you say, you know what? Let me hand you this big book on Falun Gong and and why it's so evil Wait, so, and why so we're he, going after him. Jiang Zemin actually handed Bill Clinton. Yeah, like there's a, like there's a, actually footage of this. You can see it. I think AP or CNN captured it, where he he walks up and it's this big, you know stack of like books and magazines and he hands it to them and that's their first interaction. Like, okay, firstly, that's super weird because like heads of state don't like give each other a document at like a meet, like that's like- And a then he pulled out a comb and started combing his hair, I think. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> sure. uh, that, was a, that was another time. That was Zhang Zemin combing his hair in front of the King of Spain. Yeah, I think yeah, you're yeah, referencing. yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was kind of a weird guy. He was- He's a, He was a weird guy, but an like- An understatement. Yeah. So I was, I mean- Back to your question is like, um, you know, why over so many years, why it's the top issue. 
it's changed. The first few years, it was because of that. Then it became, I mean, look, what was happening to Falun Gong as early as 2002, 2003, horrific. I mean, there's rampant torture, um, rampant gang rape you being used sort of, and you guys have covered this on your show, being actually used as a, as a tool of suppression or, or forced organ harvesting has come out. So this is the time period where people are starting to use the gen word genocide, right? So after Jensenman stepped down, what became, what I believe became the impetus for it to still be the number one issue is cover up. Hmm. We've got to put a lid on this because now people are start, starting to accuse of, of genocide. And the, so, you, so you have that, but then in the like last 10 years, I mean, out of the Falun Gong community has, become, has come media companies and human rights organizations and cultural institutions that really, to combined, if you look at them, have really led the way in terms of pointing out the danger of the CCP to the world. And I think that is now the driver. Yes, it's still John Zeman's campaign and he has some power in China. Yes, it's still a cover-up. But now it's about, we've got a whistleblower on the stage that knows us inside and out. We've got to silence him. And I think that's what keeps it kind of at the top priority after more than 20 years. So you're saying that that Falun Gong is now like the main whistleblower. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Hmm. So it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting, like, you know, the, the persecution of Falun Gong is what, this is what you talked about last time on the podcast, how like this repression then led Falun Gong, which was basically just doing like meditation or Qigong in the park, right? Like led them to become what they were not before, which is a political organization. Ironically, they were accused of being political before they were, and then they were persecuted. And they became political uh, in the sense of basically raising awareness about the persecution and have increasingly become, now you say, the key voice in exposing the, you know, the crimes of the Chinese Communist Party. So they've, they've created their own nemesis. nemesis? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Make it's also a good movie. <laughs> it's also interesting because like when we hear like oh you're getting like th they were accused of being political, that doesn't seem like a really bad thing in the US. You know, some like all of our social issues that people talk about end up being political. Like it's not but in China at the time being accused of being political was like was one of the worst things you could accuse somebody of because yeah. that is you are the only thing that is allowed to be political is the Chinese Communist Party. Right. Yeah, well, they're political and they're backed by the CIA, right? Those two things go together, right? <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we've been accused of being backed by the CIA more than once. Yeah, which which is like unfortunate because like we're in the worst case because we're accused of it, but we don't actually get any of that CIA money. Whereas like, like at least we'd want to get some of that money. <laughs> but... Well, I mean, and, I, and I think, you know, you, you bring that up as a joke, but this is a question that a lot of people ask, which is, you know, Falun Gong is mounting this essentially big resistance movement. Is it getting, like, where is it getting its money from? Yeah, that is, a, actually, that is a very good question. And we do get that a lot. Um, and I think people have a hard time understanding the answer because it's almost too simple. And the answer is, it's a bunch of volunteers. I mean, it's volunteers worldwide. And I think, you know, if you look at the most of both Falun Gong, the practice and Falun Gong, sort of the peaceful civil disobedience movement in terms of how it operates, really, in both cases, started in China and went outside of China. And if you look inside China, I mean, today, there are literally tens of millions of people who in the back room of their apartment are printing out leaflets and under cover of night they go out and they sort of distribute these leaflets that sort of debunk the lies of the CCP. I mean, this is a massive movement. Not a, not a, not a penny of it comes from 
some corporate sponsor or anything like that. These are just regular people who feel so strongly about Falun Gong and the injustice done to them that they're going to get up and do this. Now imagine what, what that takes. I mean, how could, I don't, I can't think of an organization in the world that could through money or sort of traditional structures organize 20 to 40 million people to do that inside China. And I think it sort of speaks to, you know, when they went after Falun Gong, you're going after someone's spiritual practice. I mean, it's one of the things that people most hold dear, and they're obviously going to, you know, have a very strong uh, will to sort of counter that. And I think it's exactly the way you see it outside, the, uh, outside of China. I mean, it's just massive amounts of volunteers year after year. Yeah. I mean, it, like, I don't actually find that very surprising because having been in Hong Kong in 2019 during the protests, it's like, you know, when we saw two million Hong Kongers marching in the streets, like we talked to a lot of Hong Kongers, like they're not being paid by anyone. It's, it's the repression that costs money, but people going out and, and holding up a banner or people, you know, giving an interview to the media, like people, the people in Hong Kong, they, they were volunteers essentially of just like being part of this peaceful resistance movement against the CCP's encroachment on Hong Kong. And I think a lot of people, you know, the, the protesters themselves were donating money to make first aid kits, yeah. you know, for people who are on the front lines. I remember and, them know. like, and they'd hand out, like people would, would go to like a 7-Eleven and they'd buy like a big, you know, 24 pack of water bottles and they just like carry it to the protest. And like, you never saw like the same brand being passed out at different sites because everyone was just doing it randomly. You know, people would like make food or, or like package food. And I mean, maybe it was a little sketch, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, like, like I, I totally see the, how it could be just volunteers who feel that something bad is happening. In this case, the CCP's sort of encroachment on Hong Kong, <laughs> little did they know. Uh, and they just feel compelled to do something. We met that one guy who like flew, he was like a chef in Canada who flew to Hong Kong to be part of the protests. Oh yeah, who flew back to Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there were, I, I mean, mean, like, I mean it's, it's like with this thing. I mean, with this magazine, we just, we just put out. It started with an email from me to volunteers around the world going and say, hey, we're going to put this together. Gave him sort of a sketch of how many pages. We gave him sort of a, eh, it's probably going to be about this much per copy. Who wants one? And sort of I get a dozen or so emails from different parts of the world say, okay, we'll, we'll probably use 200 here. We'll probably use 500 here. How about we print this? We all pull our money in together, pay for it, print it, and send it out. That's the way we've been running the show for more than 20 years. And it's just sort of that's the way it's been done all around the world. Yeah. I mean, you, I haven't seen any, uh, you know, hashtag free Falun Gong campaigns from like, you know, big corporations. It's not really like the, yeah. it's not the, the, the cause du jour. No. Nothing that is, brings light to anything bad the Chinese government is doing is going to be the cause du jour. I mean, you're not going to see BlackRock. Larry uh, Fink stand there with a banner I, saying, "I don't think we're going to see the free Falun Gong, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of on the NBA court, no. sort of at, ha no. at half court." But, but there was, I mean, uh, with um, Ennis Cantor Freedom, now he's changed his last name to yeah. Freedom. Like, you know, he had his thing, and and I remember in 2019 there were like people who would go to the stands of NBA games. Yeah, yeah. And they would like they would wear these Hong Kong shirts got, and hold up banners. And well, I mean, I think they got a banned a few times. It was. Oh yeah, yeah, but like it was that doesn't, not okay to it doesn't do that hurt them to game. be banned because that's what brings attention yeah, to it. Yeah. 
and, um, and kicked out. I mean, there there, yeah. there were definitely people. I think in Philadelphia, in New York, who who were brought in the shirts, and that was sort of that really kind of hit home. Is that when you you walk into an American arena with something advocating for democracy and you get kicked out? I mean, clearly that was an indicator to a lot of people something's really wrong. Yeah, that was happening at tennis matches this year. Yeah, like the Australian Open and yep. Wimbledon because of Peng Shuai. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. It's it's really interesting. Well, I mean, I think one thing about the Falun Gong thing that's also hard to understand but also impressive to people is that it has, like, you guys have been able to keep resisting for 20-some years because, you know, you talked about, like, what the Chinese Communist Party said that you need to, like, break up Falun Gong, break up the diaspora, like, use cultural institutions, use whatever you can overseas, NGOs to target them. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is also how they targeted, for example, the pro-democracy movement Mm -hmm. overseas. Like after the Tiananmen Square massacre, a lot of people who were the student demonstrators fled overseas. They started um, trying to kind of have organizations that were promoting democracy in China, but it kind of fizzled out. Like, the Chinese Communist Party was able to really successfully target them and kind of break that up and make sure that they were never a force that could actually challenge uh, the party's rule in China. What do you think the difference is with Falun Gong that it's been able to keep going? Uh, as cliche as it sounds, I think it's it's conviction. I mean, I think, I, and I, I think it, it's clear when you look at China in the 90s, right, when Falun Gong first was introduced in 92, is, is it, it spread so fast. And initially, yes, it spread because of all the health benefits. People were like telling their, their relatives, look, I mean, it's just chronic things were going away. And it was, but pretty soon, or pretty quickly, rather, people kind of delved into the fact that, you know, the books and reading them and the principles and said, oh, this is actually a spiritual tradition. It's a tradition that is closer and more authentically connected to traditional Chinese culture than anything else that was going on in China at that time. And I think it really resonated at a very core place with people. It certainly does with me. I mean, I practice and everybody that I know, um, it's something that's very personal. It's something that's been very empowering and life-changing. When you have something like that, and you have sort of a regime like the CCP coming after it, it doesn't surprise me that you're not going to have those people easily disband or have them lose enthusiasm and just go do something else. It sort of becomes uh, very much a part of who we are. Um, and I think I think that's what really has been driving is just, and that's what I see in the community. If you look at the Falun Gong community and everybody I work with and the volunteers around the around the world, is it's it's a very deep conviction that uh, this is a very good practice. We have a right to do it. And there's something very evil coming after us. Now, there is one other component. And this is something I think the folks in China learned very early on and then the rest of us caught on to is that at some point we realized this is not just about us. The CCP and its sort of draconian ways and its ambitions um, posed a threat to everybody. And you saw this in the persecution of Falun Gong. It was sort of like you either be complicit or, or participate or, you know, something horrible happens to you. It was sort of, it took the whole society just down. And we're starting to see that internationally. The more China reaches, reaches out and has more influence over businesses and politics and stuff like that. And so there is an extra element to that. There is a very conscious, well, there's, there's an awareness in, among our community that this is horrific for us, 
but this isn't just about us anymore because this is a grave evil that sort of is, uh, it hangs over the whole world. And I think that is, that's also very much in people's minds. I mean, it's very much part of our conversation. I mean, and, and it's not just some sort of distant theoretical thing. When we're planning on, you know, what, what kind of, what methods use to expose and what's more important, what's what priority wise, what should we sort of, who should we talk to? How do we get the word out? We're thinking about that too um, because of, you know, yeah, again, it's not it's not just about Falun Gong anymore. Yeah, no, Communist Party is an equal opportunity persecutor. Yeah, very I, much so. That's kind of reminds me of Hong Kong, actually, again, because a lot of the Hong Kong protesters were like sharing that meme that's of the of the Grim Reaper going to each door, right? And there it's was like like, like Falun Gong, like Tibet, Falun Gong, Thai, or. Hong Kong, Taiwan is like the last one they haven't gotten to yet. And then, yeah, or... And then the world. The world, world. yeah. Or whatever so, it is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there's... And a lot of people had that kind of idea that um, it may be too late for us, but at least we can go down fighting and also warn people. Like, if people You mean don't, that the people said to us in Hong Kong? Yeah, like, there are yeah. a lot of the protesters who kind of knew that this was not going to end well for them were kind of like, well, at least we can... If we can't be a warning, then, you know. Yeah. I, I remember people saying that and like, I just, it just felt so dark to me. Um, but like, this is a perfect example of like, you know, first they went after Tibet, but I wasn't Tibetan. So whatever, you know, that, that German mm -hmm. pastor guy said. And, and we see this all over the place. I mean, there's like the tiger bench torture technique, for example. Yes, it preexisted Falun Gong, but it was really widely used on Falun Gong. And it was part of an arsenal or, or a little, what they're now unfortunately calling a torture kit to use to break Falun Gong. And you start literally seeing these techniques after being trained in different labor camps starting to appear uh, in the Uyghur camps and popping them up in other groups. So it's, you know, at every level that you look at this persecution, whether it's the detailed torture techniques or these, these grandiose ways of, of marshalling all of the, the missions around the world to go after and silence a group, it's already happening. They're going after other people. And it's not just persecuted minorities. I mean, this is the way they target the American public in some ways. We're now seeing those techniques and censorship and surveillance and stuff like that. I mean, it's already happening. So it, it's still very much uh, uh, something in our minds. Yeah, but they're like, they're getting better and better at torturing people. They're getting better and better at going after people. It's like, it's it's like you just gotta, you gotta, you know, practice makes perfect. And now, you know, start with a, I'm not entirely clear what the tiger bench is, but like you start with that and then you get, you know, progressively better at, at torturing people. But at the same time, what I, what's interesting to see is that these days, particularly in the last year or two, you see just regular Americans that are pretty clear on what the CCP is doing and its ambition. Ten years ago, that was unheard of. The only people that really knew it were like the China watchers and people who weren't our, you know, in that sphere that aren't already bought up. And, and us screaming into the void on China <laughs> Uncensored. <laughs> well, it hasn't quite been 10 years yet, but uh, soon. Yeah. Uh, October will be 10 years and clearly, for Chris. And yeah. clearly it wasn't just a void because it's, I think it's resonated. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it feels like that sometimes, but, you know, it's, it's <laughs> screaming th th into the void. Thank you for watching. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So, um, First of all, what what exactly is the Tiger Bench? Because I'm I'm thinking of Tiger King. It's no. not related to the show. No, no, it's a bench that you're tied to. It it's a little bit misleading because when you look at it, it doesn't say, oh, that doesn't look like that painful. But it's essentially a bench where your legs are tied down flat and you're sitting up, and 
it's excruciating, especially after they leave you there for several hours, if not a day. I mean, people who can't walk after coming, after getting up from it. But it's essentially a bench that you're tied down to in sort of in what looks like a sitting position. What does it have to do with tigers? Uh, that I don't know. Okay. That I don't know. All right. I just, I just needed to sort of get to get to the end of that because it was it was weighing on my mind somehow more than many of the other things that we've been talking about perhaps your mind's trying to distract you from all the other stuff from all the horrible things yeah uh, i mean i do it's think, a coping mechanism Matt. yeah, yeah. That's, that's right yeah but that does remind me how like uh, on alibaba like you could buy interrogation chairs oh i remember that yeah yeah could, like they like the, the metal it has, chairs it has gotten to the point where you can go on like the Chinese version of eBay and buy a torture chair. Like that's how prolific the, you know, the use of these devices has wow. been. Well, but it, yeah, it just means there's a market for that, right? Oh yeah, so, yeah. I mean, also how a lot of the quarantine camps that were built in China post COVID were pretty obviously repurposed like labor camp structures. Yeah, they were like prefab detention centers. You can yeah. you can use them for Uyghurs, you can use them for COVID they victims, you call it. Iron bars over the doors and windows. There were a lot of things that were Because the iron bars are to prevent COVID from getting out. That's that's why, yes. Yeah. That's yeah. thinking. Yeah. That's yeah. thinking. Yeah. They're, they're really smart. Yeah. Actually, speaking of COVID, I'm curious about how that has affected things like um, the campaign against Falun Gong in China. Is it less bad since COVID because they've had to redirect a lot of resources to, you know, their zero code policy and locking people up? Yeah, I mean, that that was one of the interesting, I mean, one of the first things we go through in this report is several of the trends we were seeing. And that was the interesting one because you'd think with everybody locked up, especially in the Wuhan area initially, that everything, all the numbers would go down. What we saw is that arrests and what we call harassment because, you know, I mean, the CCP breaks down your door, you're having the middle of dinner and and sort of throws, ransacks your home, yells at you, threatens you and leaves. What do you call that? I mean, that happens a lot to Falun Gong. It's just short of being actually detained and brought into a police uh, police station. So we call that harassment. Let, let, just for... Um, just so you know what that statistic comes from. So if you look at arrests and harassment, those actually went up a great deal starting right when COVID started. I mean, it was, it was, it was an enormous jump from just the year prior, whereas sentencing, as you would expect with everything shutting down, actually went down for like the first six months or eight months. And so when we looked into that, I mean, it, it was very clear to us why that's going on. And that is when something bad inside China happens, they look at the Falun Gong community as to them what it is, which is a network of getting information out of China. And so their impetus from the beginning, of course, has been to silence a religious minority, persecute a religious minority, but it is also to make sure that that network, which has proven very proficient in getting stuff out of China, doesn't get something out of China. And and around Wuhan was, was some of the worst areas. So you saw um, cases of being arrested and harassment go way, way up. They actually had to bring police officials into the Wuhan area because a lot of them were sick with COVID in order to sort of manage this 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 uptick um, on Falun Gong. And, and that was one of the surprising numbers that we saw in China. And if you see, if you look at some like, like some of the specific cases, like there's this lady named uh, Shuna who's, you know, uh, back in 2008, her and her husband were coming home for a concert. They were picked up. They had a Falun Gong book in their bag and they were both put in, in, in detention. He died a week later. She spent years in, in uh, a prison camp. She was tortured. Um, 
She's back out, and then along comes COVID, and she and a group of, I think, 10 friends were all arrested in this group arrest in Beijing, not because necessarily they practiced Falun Gong or anything like that, because they were taking pictures of what was actually happening on the streets of Beijing during the COVID period where the CCP going, ah, Beijing's good. We don't have a problem here anymore. And she was taking pictures and, and sending that out. So that was happening a lot. So they were really going after Falun Gong to silence um, COVID reporting. And that's why you saw an uptick there. Yeah, what, one thing that was uh, that Shelley and I found interesting in your report is uh, one of the early Wuhan whistleblowers, uh, Fang Bing. You you said in the report they were a Falun Gong practitioner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean he I, was he was one of the big ones, right? He was right at I mean I think end of January the twenty fifth around there where they're still saying everything's very much under control in Wuhan. He's sending out pictures of like body bags and and the huge yeah, he lines was broadcasting yeah. I, yeah. on I, YouTube. I, I didn't yeah. I didn't know I didn't know he was a Falun Gong practitioner. Yeah, he was a Falun Gong practitioner. Oh yeah, because I th there was a lot of media coverage of him. Yeah, we did a, we did stories on him and some of the other whistleblowers too. Um, yeah, never saw anywhere that he was Falun Gong. So now yeah. I now I see why the CCP perceives Falun Gong as being so dangerous during COVID. It's just like people who are like you you spent the last 20 years doing like documenting horrible things the CCP has done inside China. And so like now it's it's like it's escalated to the point where it's no longer just about going after Falun Gong, as you said earlier. It's about like covering up the cover up that covers up the cover up, like that whole, like you just sort of spirals out of control, like a lie, like you lie, like you, it's like one small white lie that just like gets out of control, you know, as you try to cover it up. And, you know, it's interesting how that started because in the first few years of the persecution, when I mentioned the Falun Gong are printing leaflets out, leaflets out and putting them on front doors at night and stuff and letting people know all the stuff on state-run televisions and nonsense. They were hitting a lot of resistance. And what we found inside China, at least, is that people were just highly brainwashed. They're like, hey, if the CCP says you're bad or evil or this or that, you probably are. And so at some point in the community, we decided if we're going to get people to listen and understand what's happening to us, we're going to have to tell them who the CCP thing really is. So let's go back to the beginning and have that conversation. And so a lot of the materials that that Falun Gong community inside China passes out is not really just about Falun Gong. It's also about, you know how the CCP came to power, how many people they've actually killed, what all those you know, different movements were about, and really dissecting the history of the CCP. So there is an impetus already, not just because, oh, something's bad and, and, and I'm gonna report anything that's bad, but there's very much a, a something, there's very much an intent to say, look, the CCP is really evil. Clearly, you're not listening to us. We're going to tell you who the CCP really is. And out of that comes all this, this impetus to, to report Things like COVID, things like SARS. The same thing happened in SARS. I mean, the network of Falun Gong practitioners knew about a mystery illness two, two and a half months before it hit the world stage. I mean, we didn't even know what it was when we were getting the reports out of China. It was just, you know, this mystery illness that was passing around. So there is very much an impetus in the community to, to, to report this stuff. Yeah. And do you, have you seen a change in the attitudes of people in China that's of one that? of the bright parts of my day, okay. Shelley, I'll have to say, is that because it's so dark so often, but there are so many of these little pockets. It might be a village somewhere or some sort of little precinct in some far-flung corner of Shanghai where, you know, the local Falun Gong people who, they know the police officer, they know the chief of police, they know the CCP guy, and they've been talking to this guy for sometimes years. And at some point, a change happens just in that little piece. So we have these, there are these little pockets all around China where 
they've kind of said, we're not doing this anymore. And so you see a lot of that. Um, so that does happen, and it's 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 one of the few bright spots that come. When out you of say this. we're not doing this anymore, what do you what do you mean? We mean they're not gonna they're not gonna follow the CCP to persecute Falun Gong because normally you know they have quotas every year. This is how many Falun Gong people you got to detain and brainwash and convert to you know love the CCP again, and that whole and those campaigns take different names. I mean they they roll out different sort of initiatives to keep the persecution of Falun Gong going. Um, Can I just say that's a horrible idea to have a quota for how many Falun Gong to arrest every year? Because the problem is that you're actually incentivizing them to have more people practice Falun Gong and to release them earlier so you can keep arresting them to meet your quota. It's because just you're going to really, run out of people? Yeah, is that otherwise you run out. It's a really poorly thought out <laughs> quota system. Just, you know, if you're watching Chinese Communist Party, bad idea, don't do the quotas. <laughs> You heard I it from Matt. Yeah. Think about it from that angle, I got to yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is, this is uh, smart brain thinking, yeah. So, I mean, what happens if they don't meet the quota? Like, if they're like, uh Well, a lot of the times, it's they get demoted. And this has been happening since the very beginning. I and mean, this is something that Jensen almost pioneered. I mean, I think he elevated more generals in one year than all his predecessors over like a decade. I mean, he was he was crazy about elevating people who are going to support the anti-Falun Gong campaign and demoting and kicking out people. Well, that was his whole thing about building up the like internal security apparatus, right? Because he, like China used to be like the military would, was like the big spending thing. And when they when they went after students in Tiananmen Square in 1989, it was the military who came in. But they don't use the military for internal stuff anymore because Jiang Zemin created this ginormous internal security apparatus through the, the PLAC, the people's, what is it not no, called? It's political. political, legislative, you know the rest. It's, a, it's, a, it's an acronym. <laughs> my, my brain went action committee. And I know. Then I that's went, what I, no. no, wrong country. Political, political legislative affairs committee. That's the one. <laughs> Uh, uh, led, led the, led the, mission, some yes, mission. led by that guy who looks like a thwomp. What's his name? Uh, Joe Young Kong. Not anymore. He's in prison for the rest of his life. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, power struggle stuff, right? But like one of the things that, was, that, that changed is a few years ago, like the, the spending for the uh, internal security crossed the line where it's now greater than the spending on the military. And that's crazy because we've seen how much... China's military, the People's Liberation Army, is building up. It's building up the army, the navy, their air force, uh, the rocket force. And yet to see that internal security spending is still outpacing that. Like that's crazy. And I, I mean, if, if you think about it, I mean, how do you get, you know, a person to go torture somebody? I mean, how do you do that? And this person is probably has kids, goes home to his wife. And I mean, the the monetary incentive to break a Falun Gong practitioner was enormous. And it still is a key factor in driving the persecution around the country. That it's just like you, you pay people enough money and they'll torture anyone. I mean, I think you also have to do some psychological things about making them like subhuman, right? Like this is not a person. Like you got to make like the way that the Germans like, you know, referred to the groups they wanted to go after, the Nazis, I mean, not the Germans, but like they create, so this group is like a subhuman, this is like an animal, or like the way the Japanese treated the Koreans as well, like an inferior race almost. Well, you, you think about um, what Mao said even 
in one of his early speeches about the People's Democratic Dictatorship, right? And he was like, okay, the People's Democratic Dictatorship, like the CCP is the People's Democratic Dictatorship, and we need to listen to the people. However, uh, the counter-revolutionaries, the rightists, like he listed a whole bunch of groups, and he's like, these are not the people. They're, they're sub-people. They're, he didn't say sub-people, sub, but, but he basically was like, because they are against the revolution, they don't count. And they need, that's the dictatorship part. Like, these people need to be controlled. Like, the counter-revolutionaries, the rightists, they need to be controlled. Right. Uh, and they are not the people, right? Yeah. So well, you, I'm not clear Mao thought very highly of people in general, because remember his whole thing about how, like, he told the Soviet Union that, like, Oh, you know, we have 600 million people in China. If like half of them die in a nuclear war, like not a big deal. We'll just rebuild, right? Like he's like, we got a lot of people, like n no biggie. Let's just say, you know, the sciences were not Mao's strong suit. The sciences? <laughs> well, I was thinking biology, uh, agricultural sciences, like, you know. Oh, yeah, we'll do a great famine and all that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think you can say brought more broadly about the CCP. I mean, what are they good at? Are they financial wizards? Are they sort of, you know, administrative wizards? No, but one thing they are very good at is character assassination. And that's one of the things that was sort of deceptive for me. Because when I look at, you know, if you just look at typical CCP propaganda, it looks so on the nose and obvious, and you're like, who would ever believe that? But actually, um, seeing their persistence and the way in which they, to they, they tap into the, the market they're going after, um, and what they did with Falun Gong in this respect, because you're absolutely right, that was actually a key component and remains a key, key component, is to convince the public that, the, that Falun Gong is evil and twisted and, and, and deserves sort of what's coming to them. That was a, a driving principle of the persecution, which was not in place in the first year. And that's why Jensen in that first year had so much trouble getting the rank and file to, to fall in line when it came to persecution of Falun Gong. He actually had to do a tour among the provinces, especially in the South, after I think a year, year and a half in, because people were just not buying it. And you know that and a number of other things finally twisted um, a lot of the people to sort of go against Falun Gong. And I, I, I could I remember the day actually when when that sort of sunk in for me because I had gone to Chinatown a lot as as practicing Falun Gong and you know our, you know I had a shirt that said Falun Gong and you know it was people would say hey there's a Westerner come to China to Chinatown they'd welcome you into their store they'd be all friendly and there was a time I don't remember what the exact date it was but I remember the the look on her face when I was walking down Chinatown I had a Falun Gong on my shirt and. Same kind of reception. She came out, she saw my face, and she's like, oh, here's a Westerner in Chinatown. Here's what we're selling. Very friendly. She looks and sees my shirt. And the distortion on her face was immediate. It was like she just saw something horrid, and she kind of uh, drew away from me. And then that was the end of the conversation. She went mm -hmm. into her store, and that was it. And that was sort of where I realized they'd succeeded to some extent with the Chinese populace yeah. on convincing them that Falun Gong is something evil that they need to stay away from. If I had to guess, it would have been after the... Um because oh, we did we did an episode on this uh, the the Tiananmen self immolation thing that the CCP staged this thing in Tiananmen Square where they uh, like they basically hired like some homeless people or or mentally ill people to like light like do like a Falun Gong type meditation and then light themselves on fire to make it seem like that's something that. Falun Gong did, which is, which was kind of believable because there were Buddhists who had done that in the past, but like apparently this is not like. Well, it turned out like it was not Falun Gong who did it, but because they broadcast it, then they like they got this footage 
of people setting themselves on fire. They, the party said it was Falun Gong and they broadcast it like daily on state-run media for like a year or something. And then like that and, and it probably was had gruesome. a big- It was gruesome. I mean, it was, I mean, they had oh, yeah. up, up, up close photos or oh, video. Oh, I've, seen, like, I've seen the video. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was just it was pretty it was gross. Just awful. And I can see how, even if, you know, in the nineties, if you had family members practicing Falun Gong and you knew it was sort of this wholesome traditional Chinese thing, if you watch that kind of video long enough, it, it has an impact. And, and I think you're absolutely right. That was a key turning point inside China. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, like if, if you had, for example, uh, you know, baseball players and you stage something where like a bunch of baseball players set themselves on fire or did something that seemed crazy. Like you'd start to think like maybe baseball is like leads people to this. Like, I know that sounds stupid because it is stupid, but also it's really effective. And you say, you know, the CCP is really good at character assassination. And like, they, like, they really did a great job of assassinating Falun Gong's character in China. And that's like one of their incredible successes is to take something that was like widely regarded as like a, a big health benefit thing. And then in like, you go back to like 94, 95 or something. I remember right? seeing some documentary where they had a bunch of um, clips from Chinese state-run media that were praising Falun Gong, basically. Yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. and it was, you know, showing people, like, doing these exercises in the morning in parks and then interviewing people about how great it was. And then, like, the state-run media reporter would be like, yeah, this seems pretty great. Yeah. Uh, it, it just, <laughs> yeah, kind of mind-blowing in relation to what happened later. Yeah, and and I think what's what's interesting is that, like, the 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 perception in China, whether it was people or like state-run media, was super positive towards Falun Gong for like, you know, most of the 90s. And then like by the end of the 90s or, you know, whenever early 2000s, it cha it changed completely. And like like it's crazy that people are like this is just how human beings are though, but like it's 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 funny to think that like we can just completely change our view of something based on what is like repeatedly told to us in the media. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I remember having uh, a lot of conversations with my Chinese friends when this was happening around 2003. And um, one of them sat me down one night. So we were going through sort of the, CC, the propaganda stuff and they pointed something out. And it was, it was this footage of Chinese students um, uh, being interviewed with the picture of the tank man, right? From Tiananmen Square. Mm, mm -hmm. And they're like, hey, do any of you guys know who this is? And every single one of them said, no, no, I'm not sure what that is. And the point of the, the news story was like, look how good the censorship has been. They don't even know what this is. And what my friend pointed out is says, actually, most likely at least half of those kids knew what that was, but they knew not to say it. And his point was, what he made about Falun Gong is like, it's, it's almost worse than making everybody hate Falun Gong. A lot of people, especially those who had family members or themselves had practiced, knew very clearly what Falun Gong was. But they also know that just lived through decades and decades of the CCP going after different groups. And when they go after a different group, it is horrific. A lot of people are going to die. A lot of lives, a lot of people are going to disappear. They're so scared that they could be targeted, that they could somehow be wrapped up in this. They're willing to, to, to walk around and behave like they don't believe Falun Gong is good even though deep down they do. And I, what you saw in China is a mix, and that mix changed over time. I mean, certainly there was a, a whole 
group of the populace that really were convinced by this terrible propaganda. It's like, oh, these Falun Gong people must be weird. But at least at the beginning, a larger population most likely is that one that was so scared. They just sort of like, yeah, that's evil. I don't want to touch that. And knowing, you know, they're lying to themselves. They're living a lie. And then they're living, they're telling this lie to everybody else. And that's sort of really tragic because, you know, what does that do to somebody when they have to walk through their life kind of like, Ugh. I mean, we, we all lie to ourselves, <laughs> Levi. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about this when you were talking about how you were talking about the leaflets and people deciding that they actually had to go back and explain the history of the Communist Party to people. Uh that in a lot of cases, people in China, like it is easier and uh, to just believe when, like when the government says you're a troublemaker, that you must have done something, you know, not necessarily that you were exactly what the the Chinese Communist Party said you were or had done, but like you must have done something, um, and I think that is the thing that a lot of people cling to until it's suddenly them on the other end of it. Like, I remember it was the a New York Times story about a guy who had gotten arrested for making a joke on WeChat in a private WeChat group with his friends. He'd made some kind of joke about teaching Ping. Was it a good like joke? I don't remember what the joke is anymore. This was, like, from, like, 2018 or 2019. And he got taken in and, you know, detained for a couple months for making this joke on WeChat. And then he was like, when I came out, all my friends uh, were like, you deserved it. You know, like, even though you, it, you know, like, and he was like, I shouldn't have been detained for just like making some stupid joke. And they were like, but you should have known to not cross the, the line, to not cross the party, you know. And I think that's something that people like, think that like well as long as I don't cross that line you know like if you feel like the people who got in trouble must be troublemakers then you're like if I'm not a troublemaker I'll be all right and I think this is also one of those first, things first they came for the troublemakers well, but I was not a troublemaker and well, that's the end of the story no problem for me I, I was thinking the Shanghai lockdown had a big psychological impact on a lot of people because it was, you know, it covered so much of society and a lot of people who thought they weren't troublemakers. Right, right? like the, like the middle, class, the, middle the, class, even the rich like in Shanghai are like locked down. For yeah, and they were like, I didn't do anything and suddenly I have no food in my apartment and, you know, th this isn't right, you know. So I think that that's one of those things that, that I think slowly you see that mentality in China changing on a grander scale as the Communist Party kind of targets more and more people. I mean, zero COVID, um, everybody's more afraid of being quarantined than they are of getting COVID. Pretty soon it's going to be zero colds. <laughs> yeah, well, right. zero COVID is going to work just about as well as zero Falun Gong. Which Not is, at all. Which is saying it doesn't, it doesn't work long term. That, that COVID's just going to go underground. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, anyway, that's, I mean, it's going to be endemic, but... Uh, but yeah, like eventually, eventually you're going to have to deal with it. I mean, um, it, I mean but, it's interesting you say that because for the last two and a half years, they've had literally a zero out campaign. That's what they call it of Falun Gong, where they're going around the country. This is one of the trends we talk about in the report where, you know, again, it's sort of like if you're going to persecute people for like 
going on 23 years, they have to breathe new life into it. So every three year, four years, you see a new campaign and you know new monetary incentives, all this kind of stuff. So back in 2020, there was the zero out campaign against Falun Gong. And the idea was to bring the number of Falun Gong practitioners in your area to zero. Wait, was this before or after zero COVID happened? Before. Okay. So this started in like April of 2020. Oh. Oh, uh, no. Oh. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, so there was COVID. Actually, no, I'm sorry. It started the year before. So this was going this was going on before COVID just hit the scene. Yeah. Okay. So twenty nineteen. But it, you see a very similar mentality. And you know, uh the idea was to try and use coercion and some of the more tech things, you know, so they have you know the the card that everybody carries in China that has a chip on it that, you know, has all you know, your social credits, all that kind of stuff. You mean like on your phone, like it's yeah. got like your app. Yeah, set. so now they have a thing where if you're one of the things you're flagged as as a Falun Gong practitioner, if you just get within twenty feet of a police officer that's got one of these devices, it goes off. So they can actually tell, you know, who the Falun Gong are. They just walk into a square and tell who the Falun Gong are. That's one of the things they're using in this zero out campaign. But you made the analogy, it's it's having less it's less effective than the zero out zero COVID policy. Wait, wait just, so so if if you if you practice Falun Gong in China your phone has like, like, because you, you're not going to put that on your own phone, right? No, they do it. They do it. So the, yeah. someone has identified you yeah. as Falun Gong. Like, would which, you have which, had to have been detained yeah. before or something? Yeah, they knew okay. you, okay. you know, or they, you know, maybe they weren't quite detained. Maybe you harassed, right? Maybe they know there's this community of five Falun Gong people in this neighborhood and they've they've ransacked your home. They've confiscated stuff. Maybe you haven't been detained. A lot of them have been detained. Or maybe you're just suspected of being Somehow Falun Gong, you've, but, you've, yeah. you've been identified. So yeah. then yeah. like everywhere you go, they can essentially, and because like one of the things that they did with the, that they've used the zero COVID stuff for is is earlier this summer, there were a bunch of um, protests because some of the local banks were not allowing people to make withdrawals. They're like freezing their accounts. And so people went to the protests. And then afterwards, uh, it turned out that like local authorities had turned some of their, like some of the people's COVID, like COVID apps turned red or their travel app or whatever. Yeah. So, so they couldn't actually take public transit to go to another protest. And it's like your phone turns red saying like you can't travel because you have COVID, but actually it's because they want they, to control, they want your to control you. Movement. Yeah. And so I, they can do that now to Falun Gong because everyone has cell phones. I think that like that case also was in a few cases, people had talked on WeChat or something like that about joining a protest and their code changed color, their health code changed color. So yeah, I I, that actually reminds me, like, th there was a, something happening similar to the Uyghurs, where they were being made to install certain apps on their phones. And, I mean, obviously, geographically, it's easier to keep track of the Uyghurs because most of them are going to be in one, in Xinjiang. But, like, it, yeah, that sounds very, I had no idea that they were doing that with Falun Gong, too. Uh, so if you are if you're, have COVID, your app turns red. If you're Falun Gong, it turns yellow. I don't know what the if color is, if but it's not good. Okay. So uh, what's well, interesting, because like the Uyghurs, right, they're all in one place. Although now they've made the mistake, the, the party has made the mistake of, of shipping them out to do forced labor in all different parts of China. Yeah, well, so I think So now it's harder was, to keep track. Well, not when they ship them out because they're in separate facilities with security guards and things like that. It is- it's, it's, it's like how to get around US sanctions on Xinjiang is you just you just do the Xinjiang forced labor, that same thing, but 
Yeah. You, br you bring the people in the factories to a different province, and then it's like a-okay. Well, I, I mean, I actually think that the we the the Xinjiang slave labor bill has a provision that accounts for that. Like, it doesn't have to be physically in Xinjiang as long as it's slave uh, okay. labor with Uyghurs. But I think they were doing that before any of that legislation came in because they were trying to hide how many people were being detained. Uh, they were trying to kind of like disappear the population so that you wouldn't be able to tell how many people were in detention. And that's something that's been going on for years, a tactic like that. I mean, a lot of the Falun Gong and labor camps over the years will will, t will, will tell the stories of just the two locations, right? A lot of these camps have two locations. It's stuff where the actual slave labor happens and the stuff is made, then it's put on a truck. It's shipped over to the company warehouse where they say they make it, but they don't. And that's the official address and everything like that. So that kind of stuff has been going on for, for many, many years. What was that documentary that we watched, like Letter to Masan Jha, where there's like a letter guy- from- Letter from Masan Jha, where he was like making like a like Halloween kits or something. Yeah, and then he, Halloween decoration. Because he was detained for practicing Falun Gong. And then like some American woman found like a Halloween decoration with like a help me, I'm in a labor camp note. And then, yeah, so. Um, yeah, she, well, was in, she was in Oregon. And I think the filmmaker actually got those two together. Yeah, um, he yeah. had gotten out of China. He had gotten out of China, and the woman in Oregon who found those uh, got those two together for an interview. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of of America, I want to kind of you know bring this back to some of the stuff that the Communist Party is doing, the the transnational repression, because we started talking about that, and I actually wanted to talk more about that, and then we got distracted with you know all of the terrible things, all that the terrible happened. things, and the tiger benches and all that. Uh, so so going back to transnational repression, there's. How is the Chinese Communist Party monitoring people? Let's just focus on the U.S. for now. Like, how are they monitoring Chinese dissidents and like other China-connected danger people uh, as part of this transnational repression? Well, I mean, they do. They have an enormous amount of human intelligence, unfortunately. Um, a large population of the students that are over here, a large population that came over from China, they're working here. If they're not outright spies when they came here, they have family members back home and those are often used as leverage so that you could actually be a regular student or you're just trying to get a degree and make a good life for yourself. But you happen to be Chinese and the Chinese government comes and knocks on your door while you're sitting in your, you know, in Iowa at your university and say, look, you know, you need to look after, I want you to look at some of, spy on your other Chinese students or something that's going on on campus. Maybe there's a Falun Gong group on campus. So a lot of that human intelligence happens a lot through the Chinese community. And it's primarily through the embassy um, control over the student groups that are on campus or the embassy coordinating community groups, pro-Beijing community groups in Chinatown. Um, and that that's highly pervasive, and that's that's a that's a big way in which they kind of keep tabs on people um, and do a lot of surveillance here. I, yeah. I remember because the FBI has started talking about transnational repression mm -hmm. this year, and they had released some indictments of people who were um, basically accused of helping the Chinese Communist Party harass Chinese dissidents in the U.S. And one of them was a guy who actually was posing as also a Chinese dissident, where he had um, for, you know, decades been uh, in the community of, like, activists, democracy activists, different groups, and 
kind of got people to confide in him, um, you know, from Hong Kong or different places. And he was like passing along information to the Chinese Communist Party the whole time. Wow, that's terrifying. And we get, you know, I mean, that happens. I mean, that's one of the things with Falun Gong is it's totally open. It's like if you want to go to an event and, and, or a practice site in the park, I mean, it's just, you know, it's totally free for anybody who comes to wants to, to learn or participate. So it's a fairly poor system. And we see a lot of that. I mean, it's some, usually it's so, it's... so so like so you as a Falun Gong practitioner don't know whether other Falun Gong practitioners are like actually plants from the Chinese Communist Party? Well... Now that you put it that way, <laughs> I mean, we know each other pretty well. And I think after you've practiced Falun Gong, um, you know, there are certain things, you know, if it's, if I see someone sitting over there chugging a beer and smoking a cigarette, I'm like, okay, that's probably not someone who practices Falun Gong. So there are indicators, but yeah, I mean, there'll be a lot of, if new people come in, we're not sure. But the, the interesting thing is we found is, is we don't pay too much attention to it because there's not a lot they can find out that we don't. You know, we're not we're not when hiding. Are you gonna much? have the next parade? Yeah, when are we gonna have the next parade? Or you know, when are we gonna go sit in front of the Chinese consulate again? You know, we're not worried about that. And quite frankly, um, a lot of those people, you know, came over and they're here to spy on us. And they'll be like, at some point, they're like, eh, I don't want to do this anymore. Can I have a Falun Gong book and start reading it? And they do. So we don't we don't spend a lot of time on that. It definitely happens. They definitely have people come in and, and, and they're spying on us and trying to learn something, but it's, it's just not something we're too worried about. What does concern you with the transnational repression? A few things. One, the violence, which continues. I mean, we talked about some of the stuff that happened to some of our folks, and that continues. I mean, it, it, whether it's in the United States or Hong Kong, certainly, I and mean, we've, we've had people beaten up with baseball bats and, and all kinds of stuff. We had someone who was shot, um, a guy who lived in Australia that was uh, following this Chinese delegation. He was going to serve them with legal papers for crimes against humanity, things like that. A couple guys pulled up next to him with semi-automatic rifles and shot him. Where was this? This was actually, he was following this delegation. They, they had just landed in South Africa. Um, so the shooting actually happened in South Africa. But this, this gentleman is, is from Australia. So a lot of beatings and, and death threats and stuff. So that we're certainly worried about. These days... We're also worried about the diplomatic pressure. And we talked about, you know, John Zeman walking up and talking to Bill Clinton. There were people going into Condoleezza's office when she was national security advisor and sort of trying to spew a bunch of anti-Falun Gong stuff. And it happens pretty much at every level of the government and has for the last 20 years. I and mean, we have mayors in small cities in America who will call us and say, ah, I was just about to do a proclamation for you and I got a, a letter from the consulate in Los Angeles telling me that, they're going to pull out and not be our sister city if I support you. That stuff is rampant. Um, and they go to our congresspeople, our mayors, our governors. I mean, they're constantly working on our uh, government leaders to try and suppress us in silence here. So that's the second thing uh, we're worried about. Um, the third thing, which is the sort of hardest for us to do anything about, but um, is the economic coercion. And, you know, you see that the, the NBA was a clear example of that. I mean, uh, what, what happened when, um, you know, uh, Dallas, Ma not the Mavericks, Dale, Houston, Dale Murray, Houston Rockets, yeah, right? He, the like, general manager. He, he retweeted something to support Holland. Uh, Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Ho Holland Gong is what I was going to say. Ho Holland Gong. Yeah, you support the Falling Gong. So support democracy, right? As, right. As, as, as edgy as that it, is. It's a disgusting thing for an American yeah. to do, but go on. Like free and, Hong Kong, right? And yeah. so, you know, the entire league went silent. 
you know? Right. And, well, and, but they, they had like their whole broadcast in China basically shut down. Sure, sure. But to wield that kind of power over the NBA on Hong Kong, um, which Hong Kong's very visible, it's democracy oriented, it's something the Americans understand. Now, imagine the amount of economic coercion they're able to do with Falun Gong. Um, who doesn't have, doesn't sort of, is not as well known in, in American society as Hong Kong democracy or something like that. And so that is something we worry about is that uh, the economic coercion and, and the extent to which, I mean, we, early, on in, early on in the persecution, there were, there were IT companies in America who were at trade shows in China saying, hey, you want to catch Falun Gong? Use our technology, use our routers, use our switches. We'll help you build this, this firewall and this surveillance mechanism. And so, and that was sort of the early days when they weren't really guarded about it. I'm sure it's 10, 20 times worse now. Well, they don't have to because now Huawei has stolen Cisco's technology so they can, they can do the, the routers and all that themselves. It's all uh, homegrown. The ones that work anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, have you seen cases of economic coercion related to Falun Gong? It's hard to, it's hard. It, that's the hardest area to say, ah, oh, there's a smoking gun. You see weird behavior. I mean, you see, you know, I, I, the media is maybe the most obvious where they'll cover the Uyghurs. They'll cover to some extent Hong Kong, although there's some questionable stuff there. Total silence on Falun Gong. And yet, if you look at the raw data, the human rights reports, what is Freedom House saying every, every year? What's Amnesty saying every year? It's there. Right. So why the silence in some of the media? And so you have to, and then you look at the leadership of those media companies and you go, oh my goodness, they've well, got enormous deals in China. It would be completely bizarre if something weird wasn't going on there. So, because because you you mentioned the media and like, you know, as we said, uh, the the COVID whistleblower from Wuhan, Fang Bing, was a Falun Gong practitioner. I didn't know about that until I looked at your report. This week. Yeah, I actually and, went like, and did a Google search for Fung being Falun Gong because I was like, is that true? I haven't seen there, that it, anywhere. <laughs> and, and it's interesting that that never got mentioned. And so, like, let's talk about, a, you know, a few of these media companies that have ties to China. Well, I think we talked to New York about New York Times last time you were on and some of the reasons right. that they may not want to and, report on. And, and their, their largest stakeholder is Carlos Slim, who's a Mexican billionaire who has very big, um, I think, automotive business interests in China. Um, but I think- You've got and, and Washington Post with Jeff Bezos, who's yeah. getting all the Amazon products from China. Yeah. Well, Amazon did this weird deal, publishing deal with like the Chinese state-run publisher where they made a website that to sell like Xi Jinping's books. Or like you, you can't leave bad reviews <laughs> for Xi Jinping's book. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why you'd want to leave a bad review. I mean, it's such a well-written piece of work. I mean, I just, I don't see how anyone could not like- the governance of China. Just, just saying. Personally written by Xi Jinping. Yeah, that's sure. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so we, Amazon's got some weird stuff going on. Right, but like you know, all the media companies, like the biggest media companies, have business. You know, NBC has their their broadcast contract with China, and uh, you know, no doubt the Olympics. The Olympics, yeah. right? I mean, we had we had a group in Australia who were, you know, just a group of volunteers, you know, exposed to the persecution in Australia. And they went to the media, and this was in the run-up before the 2008 Olympics. And at least one of the companies was honest enough to say, sorry, I can't cover you, otherwise we don't get to go to Beijing in a few months. And they just came right out and said it. But it's an obvious dynamic that's 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 at work. Um, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate because it's done a lot of damage. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the damage is that, like... 
we are having a podcast where you essentially at the beginning kind of explained what Falun Gong is in a way that no one is like, what's a Tibetan or like, what's a, what's a Uyghur or what's a Hong Konger? What's some democracy in Hong Kong? See, see, some people yeah. don't know who the Uyghurs are, but okay. like, you know. But like, okay, the, the Tibetans have done, like the Tibetans, people got it because there was a lot of coverage, at least in the 90s, of like Tibetans and yeah. like, how, how and does- I think the Dalai Lama had kind of a celebrity status yeah. that helped a lot. Richard Gere didn't hurt. Yes, yeah. that too. Yeah. yeah. So, so how do you make Falun Gong cool, so <laughs> yeah. that everyone is like, yeah, like that's awesome. Like, like I don't, I don't, I don't want to practice Falun Gong, but like, yeah, like that's that's a cool thing, and I want to like have my hashtag. I feel like it, whenever you try to make something cool, it doesn't work. Does well, it? Oh, you, you mean personally me when I try to make that's no, that is true. No, <laughs> that I is just very meant in true. general, but. <laughs> <laughs> I see how that sounds now, but I just meant in general when you, because the opposite of cool is trying to make things cool. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, so maybe, so maybe don't make I don't a know, suggestion. Levi, is, the, is there, was there a question that you can answer there? <laughs> is he asking if I'm cool? I don't, I don't <laughs> I don't know where this podcast is going anymore. Usually when, when Chris is here, we start to run off the rails close to the end of the podcast. All right. Uh, yeah. Here we yeah, go. Okay, here, here we, we go. go. <laughs> Actually, one of the things I was going to ask about is you had mentioned them going after mayors or, you know, just it is insane to me to think that like, uh, like I one of the examples in your report of transnational repression was literally the... Chinese consulate going after a Christmas parade in Perth, Australia, and trying to get like Falun Gong banned from participating in a Christmas parade. And it just, it seems so petty. You can't imagine the U.S. government, you know, going to another country and going to like the specific city community parade and being like, oh, sorry, you can't have a free Julian Assange you know, poster in this parade or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like, uh, I, I don't know where I was going with that, but it's well, just... Well, and I, I think what's deceptive about it is you sort of think like, okay, it's a Christmas parade. This doesn't have any material impact on anything. But if you look at it in the aggregate, and I think that's what's so telling about a story like that. If they'll go after something so small and so petty, well, do you think that's the only thing you're going after? No, that's just a tiny, tiny piece of a huge puzzle. Um and that, so if you look at it in the aggregate, it's it's all part of the same thing. It's all part of silencing and marginalizing Falun Gong. Those are the two twin goals. Because again, coming back to the idea that this is the community that years before most other people on the international stage was saying, eh, wait a minute, this CCP is really evil. You guys don't get it. They're, this is this is really bad. And you know, these are their crimes, and this is what they're doing. And so, well, we got it in 1989. And then we forgot it. <laughs> well, sort of, sort of. Um, but it was sort of, you know, I think you have to, when you look at something like the, the Christmas parade, you have to think of the aggregate because the aggregate is the reality. You know, it, it's, it's happening in every city in America and it has for 20 years. And that has, in, in aggregate, that has a real effect at keeping Falun Gong sort of off to the sidelines. It's not something people talk about. And if they're not going to talk about it, it's not on anybody's radar. There's no impetus to do anything about it. And that's exactly where the CCP wants the Falun Gong story to be. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. You do this every week? 
I know. <laughs> um, when you say this and you looked at Shelly, did you mean? I think he meant deal with Matt every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why you're in the middle, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm in the middle because so Chris can annoy me on one side and Matt can annoy me on the other side. Uh, I was gonna ask actually about because one thing I noticed this year and last year is that the U.S. State Department, like the U.S. government, actually sanctioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, some officials for persecuting Falun Gong, and mm-hmm. I do not remember seeing that before. Um, yeah, that's entirely new. Um, there were two. The Trump administration sanctioned somebody because they persecuted Falun Gong, and then the Biden administration, you know, earlier, uh, sanctioned not just anybody this time that was persecuting Falun Gong, but somebody who was part of the 610 office, you know, that, that the agency we talked about that's specifically targeting Falun Gong, which is huge because... Officially, the 610 office still kind of doesn't exist. That's the official line of the CCP. And, and, and so to sanction that individual was, was also an acknowledgement that said, hey, CCP, we understand that this office exists. And we understand, you know, the, the mission of that office. So that was huge from sort of a diplomatic standpoint. I think what most people miss is how big it is inside China. Because, you know, we talked about these tens of millions of people who are getting persecution reports out of China so that, you know, people can know what's going on in China. Well, the information goes the other way, too. Those leaflets that people were printing out, well, they get a lot of that information from overseas human rights workers. Um, you know, the history of the CCP and stuff like that, but also news of, hey, this official in China was just sanctioned by the United States government. That goes on a leaflet, and suddenly it's on every doorstep in your village or your town or your city in China. And the reason that's so big is, first of all, they're like, that's a a clear acknowledgement the United States stands on the side of Falun Gong, not the CCP. That's big in and of itself. But what may be bigger is that a lot of the folks in China have some hope to get out of China, including a lot of police chiefs and those folks. They want their kid to go to college here. They want something. And those sanctions prevent you from traveling, prevent you from having money out here. Suddenly, everybody's scared that oh, they're next, or they're going to get on some list that, the, China, that the, the United States government has. And so we actually saw a lot of reverberations around the China where people were like literally coming to the Falun Gong people that they had detained and saying, uh, I'll let you go if you don't tell them I did this. Or people, people who are trying to move their position, like this is the part of the department, the police department, the, the, the unit in the police department that goes after Falun Gong. Oh, I work over here. I don't work on that unit. I work over here. And they're changing their titles and they're changing. A lot of that was going on in China for both sanctions. And this is something we fed back to the, the, um, the State Department because they didn't, they didn't even think of that. They're sort of thinking this is an international, it's mainly an international thing. It's not. It has huge ripple effects and, and real tangible material difference inside China. That's really interesting. Well, that, that's actually yeah. really positive to hear. Yeah. yeah. No, I was yeah. going to ask if the sanctions were, were a sign that like some of that, the thing that we were talking about, Falun Gong getting shunted off to the sidelines mm-hmm. was reversing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I think it, that it, pl- it definitely plays a role in that. Um, but the bigger manifestation is people going, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm next. Yeah, and, you know? and now that people in China, we just did an episode uh, about Junshui, the run philosophy, where it's like people are now talking openly about like getting out of China and how they can get out. And it comes at a time when the Communist Party is increasingly cracking down on issuing passports or doing things like confiscating passports. Um, to, and and using you know COVID as an excuse why people can't leave. So, well, well, I mean, 
this is one of the things, this is a part of the report where we sort of take a look ahead and sort of things to look at. And I think, you know, we're starting to see some troubling things in China, right? All the mortgages going up in flames and all these protests in the banks and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, things aren't looking good. Things have never looked great, but things are looking much I mean, much, the Communist Party is really good at like duct taping all these things together and like just like smoothing it over. Because every time in the last like, you know, 15 years that I've been following China, like you always think this is going to be the thing that takes them down, but it's never the thing because they're really good. Like you say, you say Falun Gong has conviction, but the communist party has conviction too. And they know how to like really just move forward and duct tape up over the cracks and bail out the boat and they. Perhaps, but at some point they might run out of duct tape or the sheer physics of the colossal thing they're taping just might fall to various degrees. I mean, maybe not the whole country, but the the thing we we're pointing out is that the worse things get in China, the worse it's going to be for Falun Gong because again, they're the first people they're going to go after to make sure it doesn't get out. And and if you combine that and you see this in Hong Kong is also in the Falun Gong community there's a there's a real um conviction to stick around. Like a lot of the folks, you know, you look over the last two years in Hong Kong, a lot of the media have left. A lot of, there's a lot of people who have left, rightly so, understood. There is a contingent of Falun Gong that are staying put. And if things, the worst things get in China, it's probably going to be the same thing. They're going to stay put and they're going to tell us what's really going on. And by doing so, they're really putting themselves in harm's way even greater than they are now. And that's something to, to sort of keep our eye on if some of the cards start to fall. In China, it could get really bad. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about Hong Kong, but we, I mean, we we were running out of time, but I actually do kind of want to ask about this. I remember in remember when we were walking in Hong Kong 2019, and we saw that like Chinese auntie uh, who was like wearing one of those yellow like outfits that Falun Gong practitioners wear like in, in a parade and stuff. And she was in one of the the, the walkways, like the raised walkways. Oh, she had a bunch of, um, she was passing out like flyers or something. something yeah. yeah. And then like the Hong Kong police, and this is 2019 before the repression got really bad. And like they came and harassed her. But it was also, and, it was also like the most politically sensitive day. It was October 1st. So it was the, it was the anniversary yeah. of. Sorry, is this post-security law or? This is pre. Pre. This pre. Is, this is, we this were is in back Hong when Kong. we were allowed to go to yeah. Hong Kong. <laughs> and <laughs> so there was going to be a big parade and protest later that day. But like, meanwhile, while there is just this auntie who, she looked, there, there was like the rest of this walkway was completely deserted. Just her and like 20 cops in like riot gear. And they like come up to her and they start harassing her. And I'm like, this is bad. <laughs> but it just felt like she was just there because she's always there on the weekend or something like that. She, she it didn't, didn't even know like what the October 1st date thing was. But, like, But like it was, yeah, I remember that because the police were awful. Yeah. So, but like, and then and, they yelled at us for being on the, the walkway too. Yeah I, don't, yeah. I don't remember if I got footage of that. But anyway, uh, it, I remember that because um, like, okay, so the last two years you have this national security law because one of the things that was like different about Hong Kong versus China is that in Hong Kong, you could practice Falun Gong or you could have, you know, anything, right? And you like, we'd be okay. Uh, whereas you go over to the border to mainland China and they arrest you, detain you, you know, to kill you for your organs or whatever. Uh, Hong Kong didn't have that. But now with the national security law, like they're going after people who held up blank white pieces of paper in protest, right? Like what are they doing now to Falun Gong in Hong Kong? Like how's that changed since 
since uh, the national security law? It's difficult to say, and this is where you know, I don't want to re- try and read the tea leaves about who's really, I mean, as you guys are well aware, there's several factions in the CCP and they're always fighting with each other. And which one has the upper hand in Hong Kong at any given time? It's hard to tell. It is interesting to note that, as you said, of, for many years, Falun Gong relatively free. Um, you know, they couldn't maybe rent a theater for a, for a conference or something, but relatively free in Hong Kong. That's interesting, um, even though it's technically under the jurisdiction of the CCP. Um, what we've seen is sort of isolated incidents where, you know, again, like a lady was beaten up with a baseball bat, um, you know, uh, people are threatened, death threats, information booths, you know, someone comes in and just destroys their information booths, you know, these little ladies that are handing out leaflets and stuff like that. Um, but by and large, the Falun Gong community has stayed. Um, and it's not like they've all just disappeared. They pulled them over to the border, you know, and put them in a, a prison in, in Beijing, which the national security law would authorize them to do. And that hasn't happened yet. Why exactly? Honestly, I couldn't tell you. Because again, it's sort of, it's very tough to tell which of the factions is really kind of ruling the day on what's going to happen in Hong Kong. Hard to tell. All right. Well, so, so uh, let's end this podcast on some good news. I don't, I don't have any. Do you have any good news? Some good news. Um, well, I, I, I think some relatively good news. Um, you know, over the last few years, particularly after the China Tribunal um, happened in London a few years ago, where they brought all those witnesses forward and, and, and said, okay, yeah, this organ harvesting thing is real. It's been happening on a significant scale and all that. Um, you do start to see, first of all, a lot more coverage in the media, relatively speaking, but also now real laws being put forth. And even in the United States, and that was a big one, they haven't passed it yet, but there is a Forced Organ Harvesting Act um, before this Congress that has real teeth. I mean, everything else in the past, related to Falun Gong at least, has been sort of proclamation and sort of uh, statements of where the government stands. Like house resolutions, I've seen. Yeah, house resolutions, right? But, but nothing with real teeth that has, that's actionable law. And this has that. And I think other countries, some have already passed those laws. Other countries are pondering them. And so as, as more countries start to, to pass these laws to curtail the practice, that could actually have a real impact um, on decreasing and hopefully one day eliminating this practice of killing people for their organs in China. So that's kind of hopeful on the international stage. Well, that would be a good start. Yeah. Not killing people for their organs. All right, well, that's really the message of hope that we need. Uh, so if you could just slide over, you know, in a really cool way, like slide over your, your the booklet there. Oh, not me. No, I was, I was just going to hold this up. Uh, so uh, thank you for joining us, Levi. The, the book uh, is called Pandemic, Persecution, and Pushback, uh, and you can get it at? FalunGongReport.org. All right. Uh, we'll put a link to that below. Uh, is you can read it online? Is that you can read the whole thing online? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh, so you don't even have to pay for it. You don't have to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah look, look, honestly, like you fall and gong, people are really bad at making money. <laughs> I just it's for free online, which which is actually how I read it too. <laughs> um, but yeah. Wait a minute, Matt didn't even pay for a copy. I, I was like, I'm not gonna pay for a copy. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think? Uh, anyway, but thank you for joining us, uh, Levi. Um, Thanks for having me. And yeah, it's it's always a pleasure to joke around with you about Terrible persecution. Things, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a fun time. It's good to see you guys. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you for watching once again. I'm Matt Ganesta, and I'm Shelley John. Thanks for watching China Unscripted. <laughs>